Genesis chapter number 21 this morning, and uh, we're preaching through the life of Abraham, and we'll continue that journey together today. I'd like for you, if you would, to look with me in Genesis chapter 21. We'll begin reading in verse number 22. The Bible says, and it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. Now therefore, swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. And Abimelech said, I wot not who hath done this thing, neither didst thou tell me, neither yet heard I of it but today. And Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them unto Abimelech, and both of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves, and Abimelech said unto Abraham, What mean these seven ewe lambs which thou hast set by themselves? And he said, For these seven ewe lambs shalt thou take of my hand, that they may be a witness unto me that I have digged this well. Wherefore he, he called that place Beersheba, because there they swear both of them. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up, and Phicol, the chief captain of his host, and they returned unto the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Received a copy of the message outline there in your bulletin as an insert. You'll notice that the title of the message today is Great Expectations. Great Expectations. Several months ago, several months ago, I was invited to a VIP reception. I believe, I believe if it's not changed uh, since I was a young man, I believe VIP stands for Very Important Person. I think that's what it stands for. So I must tell you that it did something, probably something a little unhealthy for my ego to be considered a VIP and to receive an invite to just such an event. I, uh, I cleared my calendar for the occasion. I mean, I, it's not every day you get invited to a VIP reception in which you are a VIP. And so I did. I, I cleared my calendar. I made sure that there were no impediments in my schedule or that of my family to keep us from attending a reception for VIPs in which I was one. I, uh, I think if I remember correctly, my, one of my kids might have had an orthodontist appointment that day. I called my wife and said, cancel it. They're not going to the orthodontist that day. They're coming with me. We're, we're VIPs. We're going to this thing, you know. I remember I hurried home from work and, and, um, and, and, and got everything lined up and uh, got the children all organized. And we, we rushed out the door. We uh, even had one come home early from work and, and we had others cancel previously scheduled appointments and, and we drove even a significant distance so, so that I could enjoy this VIP reception in my honor. And as I even typed those notes earlier this week, I had to chuckle just a little bit because of how stupid I was. Even, uh, yeah, just thinking about the whole, whole affair makes me laugh. I know my family is laughing along with me. My expectations for that event far, far exceeded the reality of the event, as it, as, as it were. Uh, 
what would you what would you serve? What would you serve? Very important people. I mean, that's you know, that's I'm 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 driving there thinking I'm a very important person, and in my mind, I had visions of what was going to entail that reception, what was going to be involved, and and um, and 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 obviously. Um, I imagined it to be a certain thing, and it fell well, well below what I had imagined or envisioned it to be. And I must tell you, my great expectations have been altered for the next time, and if there ever is a next time in which I am invited as a VIP to some, uh, to some important event. You know, truthfully, as people, we are all guilty of, uh, of doing this type of thing. We, we at times have have built expectations in our minds as to how certain things should be before we arrive at whatever that event is. And normally, normally our expectations far exceed reality. My, my expectations for married life, my expectations for ministry life, my expectations for parenting life, my expectations for adult life have not always been, uh, have not always been able to, to measure the reality of what these things are. As a young Bible college student, I assumed that my ministry would be different from those who stood before us and who tried to warn us that, you know, sometimes ministry life is hard and sometimes you can preach the best sermons imaginable and nobody responds or, or maybe you even offend somebody even though you weren't trying to offend someone. I remember sitting in class thinking to myself, well, that'll never happen to me. No, no, I'll, I'll somehow be different than, the, uh, than the, the average. I'll be different than everyone else, only to discover that, yes, ministry life can be hard sometimes. I can remember, I can remember watching, uh, watching parents with, with, with young children that were a little rambunctious and a little bit ornery, and I remember, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, my kids will never behave like that. You're all laughing because perhaps at one point or another you had a similar uh, delusion of grandeur, as it were, and uh, and you've you've come to the realization that yes, your kids will be like that, and in some cases, your kids will be worse than that. I can remember watching watching couples, married couples, as they kind of would uh, would kind of argue and bicker with one another, and and it just seemed like maybe there was a little bit of tension between them, and and maybe even a little bit of distance between them over some matter. And I remember thinking to myself, my marriage is never going to be that way. We're going to get along at every moment, and we're going to uh, be in love in every single moment. It's always going to be wonderful and beautiful. And I just have to tell you that that's not always the case. There are times in which I get on my wife's nerves. There are times in which she doesn't always see things the way I do, or I don't always see things the way that she does, and we have to work through some of these things. I'm just simply saying that our expectation of what life should be like, or the way that life should go, does not always measure up to or meet the reality of the matter. In our text, we discover uh, certain expectations that are placed upon the godly that are living in this land by those who live among them, but yet they don't know the Lord. Abraham is our example of a godly man in this text, but just like you and me, he, he, he didn't always live like a godly man should live. In this series, as we've studied the life of Abraham, we've discovered that there have been times in which he's gone his own way and he's made his own choices and his own decisions apart from what God's will is, and it's always led to problems and issues in his life. 
I want us to consider these expectations together. Here's what you're going to find. You're going to find that the unbelieving world, those who do not know Christ and those who, who who do not follow the teachings of this Bible or believe the words that are found in this Bible, you're going to discover in life that they have a pretty clear and I would even say a pretty correct view about how believers should live and behave. Isn't that interesting? In other words, if you were to go to your workplace tomorrow and you were to take a little poll, and you were to ask questions of your fellow employees who don't know the Lord, who were not in church, yes, uh, church today, uh, who, who, who don't read their Bible on a regular basis, and you were to say, hey, listen, should a Christian do this? Should a Christian do that? Should a Christian stay away from this and stay away from that? You know what you're going to discover? You're going to discover the vast majority of them probably had a pretty clear and a pretty correct understanding of how it is that you and I should live. And here's what, here's what happens when they find out that we're Christians. They, they have no problem placing, listen, placing those burdens or those expectations upon us because they understand, they understand that the, the Christian life is not just a title. It's not just a name, but, but it is a life. It is a lifestyle. It is a way of living. And what we discover is that the world, the unbelieving world, has a pretty good idea of how you and I ought to be living as Christians. Here's the question. Do we, do we measure up? Do we measure up to what their expectations are for us? Because the expectations are great. But I believe, I believe that we can measure up to the expectations. I want you to notice with me in our text that this man of Bimelech, he represents the ungodly world. He doesn't know the Lord. He, he, he knows as much about the Lord as what he's seen in the life of Abraham. And yet, when he comes to Abraham, he places upon him certain burdens of expectations that we're going to see in our text. Number one, I want you to notice with me that the world expects, here's what the world expects out of you and I as Christians. Here are the great expectations of the world. The world expects to see God's presence among God's people. The world expects to see God's presence among God's people. Would you look at verse number 22? And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Fecal, the chief captain of his host, spake unto Abraham, saying, God is with thee in all that thou doest. So here comes this king by the name of Abimelech, who Abraham's already had interaction with in a previous chapter. And he comes to Abraham and he says, hey, listen, I want you to know something. When I look at you, I can see the hand of God upon your life. I can see the blessings of God evident and visible in your life and the way that you live and the way that you prosper and the way that you go about things. God's hand, God's presence is all over your life. When the world looks at those of us who are believers and followers of God, they expect to see something different in us. They, they may not be able to articulate, to articulate or to verbalize exactly what it is that they're looking for, but, but, but here's, here's what I believe that they're, they're hoping to see evidence of, and that is they're hoping to see evidence of the presence of God in our lives. The way that we live and the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we talk, and, 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 and just, just the power and the hand of God upon us. The world expects, if you're to be a follower of the Lord, if you're a believer, the world places an expectation upon you that when you walk into the room, listen, so too does the presence of God walk into the room. That's what the world expects. That's what Abimelech had seen in the life of Abraham. Interestingly enough, when they first met, Abraham was deceitful and he was full of fear. But since that point, Abraham had learned some things, and Abraham had amended his ways, 
And, and I, and I want to just take a look at in, in what ways did Abimelech see the power and presence of God in the life of Abraham? In what ways can the world around us see the presence of God in our lives as well? Number one, I want you to consider with me that the presence of God is displayed in our lives and in Abraham's life through answered prayer. The presence of God is displayed through answered prayer. Now hold your place here in Genesis 21 and go back with me to Genesis chapter number 20, if you would. Genesis chapter number 20. Genesis chapter 20 records for us Abraham and Abimelech's first interaction. And as had been the case previously, when Abraham had gone into Egypt and he had lied about his wife and said she was my sister, and the king of Egypt brought her into his home, intending to marry her, God broke the whole thing up so that they never got to that stage. The same thing happens here in a place called Gerar. Abimelech is the king. Abraham is sojourning there. When they get there, Abraham fears that if I tell people she's my wife, they'll kill me so that they can have her. And so once again, Abraham relies on the same plan that he, uh, that he relied on several chapters before when he was in Egypt. And he says, she is my sister. And this same man by the name of Abimelech brought her into his home, intending to marry her. The marriage had not yet happened when God comes to Abimelech in the early part of chapter number 20. And God says, give her back to her husband. Uh, this is a special couple. You, you, you don't realize this, but she is someone else's wife. And Abimelech says, listen, I've done this in my integrity. I had no idea what I was doing. Look in verse number seven. Now, therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet. Notice the next phrase. And he shall pray for thee, and thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. Now, one of the things that God says about Abraham, this man of God, this prophet, God says about Abraham, listen, if you'll give him his wife back, he will pray for you and your life will be restored to you. A little bit later in the chapter, we, we discover in a specific way how Abimelech and his family needed specific healing. While Sarah dwelt underneath Abimelech's roof and, and, and lived in his home and whatever exactly that looked like and however long that was, the Bible is not specific, but we discovered during that period of time that there was a specific ailment that came over Abimelech's wife and over the, the, the handmaids that lived in his home. And that ailment was that all of them were barren by the hand of God. They could not conceive children during this period of time. So God said, well, if you'll give him his wife back, he'll pray for you and I'll heal you. Look with you. Look at me if you would in verse number 17. So Abraham prayed unto God, and God healed Abimelech and his wife and his maidservants, and they bare children. For the Lord had fast closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. When God came to Abimelech and let him know that he was in a dangerous place, because of his intentions with Sarah, a married woman, God said about Abraham that he was a prophet and that if he would restore Sarah to him, he would pray for him. And when Sarah was restored to her husband, Abraham did pray for Abimelech and the Lord answered that prayer and healed Abimelech and his family. Can I just pause here for a moment and say that answered prayer, answered prayer is a powerful thing that can give evidence that the Lord is with us. And that the Lord is among us. The Bible says in Isaiah 55, 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. In Jeremiah 29, verses 12 and 13, Then shall ye call upon me, 
and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you, and ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. And then, of course, one of the most familiar prayer promises in all the Bible, found in Jeremiah 33, 3, call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I want to ask this question of you this morning. How long has it been since God answered one of your prayers? You know what I find? I find sometimes that we're way too general in our prayers. And I think maybe we do that on purpose. We do that because we figure if I pray generally, then, you know, so I'll wake up and say, Lord, get me through this day. <laughs> the Lord gets me through the day. All right, God answered my prayer. Now, what, 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 what do we need God to do in this day? What is it that God wants to do in our lives today? Lord, Lord, bless the missionaries. No, no, get, get a little bit more specific with the thing. What is it that we want God to use our missionaries to do? How is it that we need to be praying for our missionaries? Lord, just bless my marriage. No, get specific about the thing. I'm, I'm just simply saying, listen, l- listen, we need to see, we need to see answered prayer in our lives on a regular basis. Develop a list, pray over the list, and see God do amazing things. Church, church family, do you still believe God answers prayer? I think we do, don't we? I think we do. I know, I know we ought to. And so let's be, let's be a, a church that prays. And can I take this a step further? Can I say this? Pray for your lost friends. Pray for your lost neighbors. Pray for your lost coworkers. And pray over their needs. And let them know you're praying for them. Go to them. Perhaps maybe they've shared with you something that maybe it wasn't in the context of would you pray for me, it's just this is what's happening in my life. Wouldn't that be a great opportunity to say, listen, I'm going to start praying about that. They may, they may know very little about prayer, but maybe they'll come back to you in a couple of weeks and they'll tell you, hey, you know that situation I was telling you about? Man, everything got settled. And you know what you can do? You can look at them and say, you know, I, I'm not surprised. Why are you not surprised? Because I've been praying about it since you told me. And my God answers prayer. Don't you suppose, don't you suppose that that would enable them to see the presence of God in your life, the hand of God in your life? God answers prayer. The presence of God is displayed through answered prayer. But notice, secondly, the presence of God is displayed through miraculous power. Earlier in this chapter, something absolutely incredible had happened in Abraham's life. And we just have to imagine that the whole community living around them, everyone who was living near them, was made aware of this specific event. Genesis chapter number 21. After waiting, Sarah waiting 90 years to be a mother, and Abraham waiting 100 years to be a father, after having been promised 25 years prior that this child was going to come and it was going to be born, that at that, at, at Genesis chapter number 21, that promised child was finally conceived and was finally born. And notice, notice verse number five. And Abraham, when the child was born, was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born unto him. My first child was born when I was 20, almost 25 years old. My last child was born when I was 34 years old, and you would have thought that 100 years had elapsed between the two of them. 
I, I, remember, I remember thinking, you know, when my first was born, I had, I had so much more strength and stamina and energy, and, and uh, man, I, I felt like I was on top of every little thing. And uh, now my, my, my fourth child is here, nine years removed, and I, and, I, and I feel like I need a cane to just get around, you know? And, and uh, you know, I probably, uh, probably, maybe even a wheelchair would serve me just a little bit better. It was, it was amazing to me, the difference that I felt. And I'm thinking to myself, imagine Abraham at 100 years of age being a dad to his, to his son for the very first time. Had to be overwhelming. Imagine Sarah at 90 years old. The Bible says about her in Romans chapter 4, the apostle Paul wrote that her womb was dead. Her womb was dead and yet, and yet God allowed her to conceive a child and bear a child at the age of 90. Don't you suppose, don't you suppose that those living around them, those living in that region heard the news? You know, you know that, you know that old couple that lives up over the hill? Do you know, did you know she's expecting? Come on, there's no way. I'm telling you. That's what she told me. Now there's evidence that she's expecting. The baby bump is there. Can you believe all of this? And everyone was in shock. And then one day, then one day, a a little baby's whimpered cry came from the tent of Abraham and Sarah. And that long-awaited child was here. Don't you suppose, don't you suppose that as they had an opportunity to talk a little bit about the story, well, yeah, this isn't a huge surprise to us. God promised this child to us 25 years ago, and now he's finally here. Don't you surprise that people looked at them and said, surely, surely God's hand of blessing, God's presence is upon this family. You know, there are some things, there are some things that only God can do. We need to be aware of that. We resist, we resist trials, getting into situations where the only person who can get us out of the mess is God. And I understand that. I understand how, how, how that feels. I don't like to be there either. But I'm just simply saying, listen, when God steps in, when God intervenes, when God delivers us from that mess, hey, guess what? Guess who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And guess what the world says about us who are believers and, and, and Christians? Surely God's hand of blessing is upon them because look where they were then and look where they are now. Only God could have delivered them from that mess. No, God's presence is displayed through his miraculous power. I'm thinking to myself, well, that's a common theme in Scripture. Did you know that on the day that, that David slew Goliath, as he stood out in the middle there of that valley of Elah with the Israelite army behind him and the Philistine army in front of him, and that massive mountain of a man, nearly 10 feet tall, according to the dimensions that are given to us in Scripture, as David took that sling in his hand and he took that smooth stone and he placed it in that sling, did you know that David, David said, listen, Goliath, God is going to deliver you into my hand today. As impossible as that may seem, me as a young man, you as a mighty warrior, me as an average-sized man, you as a mountain of a man, and here's why God's going to do it. God's going to do it so that all the world may know that God is real. The Bible tells us in 1 Samuel 17, 46, this day, David is speaking to Goliath. This day will the Lord Lord deliver thee into mine hand, and I will smite thee, and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, unto the wild beasts of the earth. And here's why. He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Did you know that on the day that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into the promised land, as they, as they made that 
entrance into the promised land. The Bible tells us that the priests that bore the Ark of the Covenant, they, they stepped their feet down into the river for the very first time. And as they began to walk towards the middle of that river, the Bible says that the water departed north and south and that there was a highway through the midst of that river just as God had created a highway through the midst of the Red Sea. And do you know why God did that? God didn't do that just so that the children of Israel could get into the promised land. God did that so that the whole world would know that God is, is present and that he is real. The Bible says in Joshua 4, verses 23 and 24, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over, that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. That's what it's all about. And when God, listen, when God does something miraculous in your life, it's not just about you. It's not just about getting you out of the mess that maybe you've created or perhaps maybe has been created for you by someone else. No, no, listen, it's, it's usually very rarely is it about us. In most instances, God does something miraculous to show off his mighty power so that those living around us will understand God is real and the presence of God rests upon that family. God is real. The presence of God rests upon that church. Look what the Lord's doing there. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were spared, spared in the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar took note of God's miraculous power that dwelt among his faithful servants. In Daniel 3.29, he says, Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made a dunghill, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. Can I just, can I just remind us that powerless Christianity isn't just a negative on us. And it's not just a negative on our homes and on our churches it is also a negative in the lives of those living around us who do not know the Lord. Because when, when, when the world living around us sees evidence of God's miraculous power at work in our lives, in many cases, as it was in the case of Nebuchadnezzar, it causes them to sit up and say, their God is real. And who knows, maybe, maybe even some will repent of their own sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their own Savior when they see, listen, when they, when they have the expectation that God's hand, his presence is among us, and then they see the reality of the thing. May God help us. May God help us to be people among whom the world can see the presence of God in our lives. But notice, secondly, not only does the world expect to see God's presence in the lives of God's people, but notice, secondly, the world expect to see, expects to see God's character among God's people. So we move on to verse number 23. Abimelech says to Abraham, he says, I want you to promise me two things. I want to see these two things in your life. Abimelech asks Abraham for an oath of him to do two things. Listen, two things that are entirely consistent with the character of God. You know, we find, we find themes throughout Scripture about who God is. Sometimes we, we, we call them, uh, you know, his personality traits or it's what he's known for. And you know what I discover? I discover the two things that Abimelech wants to see in the life of Abraham are probably, are probably the two most evident things that we see in the life of God throughout the scripture. These things are the most common. And, and here's the point. If we are to be his children, there should be a family resemblance. 
I have a family. I have a family that I was born into. I have a family of children that were born to me. And, and I, I've, I've been told on numerous occasions that, uh, that we, we resemble one another. Just this, past, just this past week, school was coming to an end, and, and we had an awards assembly here, and, and, um, and, and we had a bunch of folks that came, you know, not everybody that knows us or knows me well. And, uh, and, and my dad happened to be at that particular event. He was there supporting my kids as they, um, as they received, you know, some awards and that sort of thing. And, uh, one of the, one of the moms of the, uh, of the children in our school came up to him afterwards and she thought my dad was my brother. Now you're laughing. I wasn't laughing when I, when I heard that. <laughs> she was serious as a heart attack. She, she said, Oh, I thought you were Pastor Pete's brother. Now I've told I've told everybody you know we sound a lot alike we 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 may may even look we, our mannerisms are alike but I always tell people I'm way better looking than he is but apparently that's not the case you know <laughs> but you know there's a family resemblance isn't there you know when you see when you see someone's children you can often you can oftentimes make the connection oh I know who your dad is. I know that by the way that you walk or I know that by the way that you talk or the way that you look or whatever the case might be. And, and don't you suppose, don't you suppose that the world ought to look at us and say, I know whose son you are. I know whose daughter you are. You have, you have his character. What two things do, does Abimelech ask of Abraham? Notice, notice the first thing that Abimelech demands to see in the life of Abraham. He says in verse number 23, Now therefore swear unto me here by God that thou wilt not deal falsely with me. Now listen, God will deal with you, but God will never deal falsely with you. What, what Abimelech wants to see in the life of Abraham is, is this, and what the world wants to see in our lives, number one, is truth. Truth. It's, a, it's a completely in line, it's completely consistent with the character of God. That the people of God be people who are committed, are committed to truth, to honesty, to telling the truth. The Bible says that we are to, we're to buy the truth and we're to sell it not. The Bible says that we're not to, we're not to lie, we're not to defame, we're not to speak falsely. In fact, one of the, one of the ten commandments is that we not lie, that we not bear false witness. And I'm just simply saying, listen, when we think of God, we understand that our God, if He's summarized in any way, He can be summarized in the truth. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. His arch enemy is the devil who is the father of lies, according to John 8, 44. Of Jesus, it was said of him in John 1, 14, that he was full of grace and full of truth. John writes that when you know the Son, you know him, the Father that is true in 1 John 5, 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true. And we are in him that is true. Even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Jesus identified himself to the church at Philadelphia in this way in Revelations 3-7. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things saith he that is holy, he that is true. Someday, someday Christ will return. He's going to return to this earth on a white horse. And on that day, on that day, consider closely his title the Bible says in Revelation 19 and verse number 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he the judge and make war. Abraham, Abraham previously in Genesis 20, Abraham had deceived Abimelech. 
And, and listen, as a result, Abimelech had to be told, had to be told by God that Abraham was a prophet. You know why God had to tell him that? Because Abimelech couldn't have figured it out any other way. You see, prophets, preachers, men of God, believers, believers ought to be people, the first people to tell you the truth. And instead, when Abraham arrived in Gerar, the first thing that he did was he lied. He was deceitful. God had to come along and basically say to Abimelech, listen, I, I want you to know he is a prophet. I, I know it doesn't sound like it, but he is a prophet. Why, why didn't it sound like it? Because he had lied. Because he'd been deceitful. Listen, the world, the world expects when you identify yourself as a believer in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, wherever it is that you live, the world expects, okay, okay, you're a Christian, then you ought not to be deceitful. You ought to tell the truth. You ought not to lie. Why? Because that's who our God is. Notice the second thing that we discover in our text, that God's character is known for truth. But notice the second thing, and that is not only truth, but kindness. Finish the rest of the verse with me. He says, don't, don't deal false with me, nor with my son, nor with my son's son, but according to the kindness that I have done unto thee, thou shalt do unto me, and to the land wherein thou hast sojourned. And I want to remain true to the text, so... I'm going to use this word for the outline, but truthfully, truthfully, God, God is love, and because he loves us so much, here's what, here's what it leads him to do. It leads him to consistently treat us with kindness. So in other words, in other words we, could even exchange, we could even exchange the word kindness for love. And when we, think about, when we think about God, what do we know God to be? God is truth, and God is love. In fact, in fact, did you know that the two words, love and kindness, are woven together many, many times throughout Scripture? And here's how, here's how, it's, here's how it's, it's found. It's found as the word loving kindness. And it's spoken specifically about God. Listen, the Bible says in Psalm 36 and verse number 7, how excellent, psalmist is writing to God, how excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. A few verses later, verse number 10, O continue thy loving kindness unto them that know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. The Bible says in Psalm 40, verses 10 and 11, I have not hid thy righteousness within my heart. I have declared thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth. There's those two things together. Thy loving kindness and thy truth from the great congregation. Withhold thou not me, my tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let thy loving kindness and thy truth continually preserve me. And then Jer- Jeremiah 9.24, but let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness, for in these things I delight, saith the Lord. Now again, upon their first meeting, Abraham's actions resulted in Abimelech and his family being placed in a very dangerous bind. Abraham is not known as a child of God because of his lack of kindness in this matter. Because of Abraham's lie, Abimelech acts in in a way that would be consistent with the world that he lived in. He did not realize that this was someone else's wife, and so he just brings her in his home, assuming, well, I'll just marry her then. And as a result, The Bible says that all of Abimelech's family was made barren. They could not conceive children for a time. Who knows? Maybe there's some other health issues that entered the equation as well until Abraham prayed for them. Abimelech could have looked at Abraham and said, well, that wasn't very kind of you. 
You lied to me, and because of you, your lie, we, we, we acted upon what you told us to be true. We did this in ignorance, and, and, and as a result, you, you, you almost made things very difficult for our family. And now Abimelech is coming back to Abraham, and he's saying, listen, treat me with kindness. I've shown you kindness. I've tried to do the right thing when I was confronted with what I had done that was wrong. And so from here on out, would you, would you treat me with the same kind of kindness? You know, our world today is no different. Our world anticipates God's people to display God's character, to reflect truth and loving kindness in our dealings with them. And listen, may they never be disappointed in these expectations. You know, I might have been a little bit disappointed in the reception that I was going to, thinking of what it was going to be. But listen, the world has expectations about our lives. May they never be disappointed. May they never, may they never look at what they think they should be getting from a Christian and receive something far less than what they expect a Christian ought to be and how a Christian ought to live. Number, number three, notice that the world not only expects to see God's presence among God's people and see God's character among God's people, but thirdly and finally, the world expects to see faithful worship among God's people. Would you look in verse 33? The Bible says, And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Some of you live in a neighborhood where you live close to your neighbors. And as a result, we sometimes can begin to almost pick up on the habits and the patterns of our neighbors, can't we? I live close enough to my neighbors to know sort of what they're doing and where they're at and I've got to know them just a little bit. My neighbor, my neighbor to the left of me goes to church on Saturday. She's Roman Catholic. Yesterday I was out in the yard doing some things and all about the time that she normally does, the garage door opened and she pulled in. She had been at her Catholic church for, for mass a little bit earlier that day. I knew exactly where she had been. That's, that's the pattern of her life. That's, that's what I've come to expect out of her. She goes to church on Saturday. She knows, she knows about our family that we go to church on Sunday. And then we don't just go Sunday morning, but we also go back on Sunday night. She, she even knows, she's, she's one of those types of neighbors that knows a lot. She's, she even knows that we go to church on Wednesday night. She, know, she knows that about us. She's figured that out. She, she has certain expectations from us. She, she, she knows, you know, that uh, Sandra and I are a team, that we're together, that we're married, and, and, uh, and, 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 and she knows our children, who our children are, and, and, and that we, you know, that we try to have a good testimony in, in front of her, and, and, uh, and, and you, by the way, you ought to do the same things. Do your, do your neighbors know that you're faithful to worship? Some, some of you, if you were to stay home from church today, and you, and you were out in the yard doing something, your neighbor would come to you and they would say something like this, I thought you go to church on Sunday. Some of you, maybe you're only here because your neighbor would give you a hard time if you didn't show up in church on Sunday. Because your neighbor expects, listen, they expect you to be a person who's in church on Sunday, who worships the Lord faithfully. That's what they expect. And they know that because you get dressed up. Because maybe you carry a Bible and because maybe, again, you're in that same routine and it's always on Sunday and, and maybe Sunday morning, maybe you go back on Sunday night and so they, they've come to expect that out of you. And by the way, they should expect that out of us. Sunday is, Sunday is the Lord's day. That's what it is, and may God help us to be faithful to God's house. Having entered into this covenant with one another, Abimelech departs, but Abraham did something that we've seen him do on several other occasions in this series. Though Abraham is living in a hostile and foreign land to the worship of God, he worships anyway. Look what it says in verse 34. It says, and Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. Those of you who have any knowledge or understanding of the Bible know, know that the Philistines and the people of God usually are not very friendly with one another. 
Abraham is dwelling among the, the Philistines for many days, and yet, and yet what does he do while dwelling among them? The Bible says that he plants a grove, and he calls there on the name of the Lord. Can I say a few things as I think about this particular thought as we conclude this morning? Number one, I want to say that worship, worship should be established in our lives. Worship should be established. Notice, notice what he does to prepare a place for him to worship. The Bible says that he planted a grove in Beersheba. And you don't have to you don't have to be a Bible expert to understand what's happening here. He's planting something, he's planting a grove. Now we'll find we'll find later in the Bible that that the children of Israel got into trouble because of groves and worshiping among groves. But it doesn't seem like what Abraham does here is displeasing the Lord in any way. It seems as if maybe Abraham does something where where, where he plants a tree that will provide, will provide a place of shade for him in the days to come. He's living in a very dry and sort of desert type of a landscape. And so he plants a tree uh, as, as a place where he can, he can go to that tree regularly and he can worship there in that place. Therefore, what he's doing is he's setting up a place. He's establishing a place for him to worship. Many, many years ago, I believe it was the year 1961, uh, the we broke ground on this particular property as a church. Prior to that, we'd met in a, in a little house not far from here. And, and then after that, for a couple of years, we met in a theater building not far from that house until we secured property here on Tiedemann Road. And, and somebody came with a shovel and they turned over the first load of dirt on this particular property. What were we doing? In some respects, listen, we were planting a grove. We were establishing ourselves here. This is a place where we are going to gather and we are going to worship. And, and many of you, week after week after week, month after month, year after year, you have left your homes and you have driven every single Sunday and Sunday, Sunday night even and on Wednesday night, you've driven onto this property and you've walked your family into this, into this building. Why? Because this is a place where we worship the Lord. It's established in our lives. Abraham was doing the same thing. Can I say that when we think about, when we think about worship, there, there really are, are two types of worship that, that God has ordained and established. Number one is, 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 is what we would call private worship. It's the worship that we enjoy alone with God, privately, away from everyone else, away from the noise and the, uh, and, and the, and the chaos of our culture. And can I just say that I believe every Christian, and I would say even your, your unsaved neighbors would say that as a Christian, you ought to have a time where you meet alone with God. It's vital. It's vital to your success in the Christian life. And some of you, perhaps you've struggled uh, to, to make headway and to do the right thing, and you've constantly wondered, what am I doing wrong? And I'm just simply saying, if you don't have a time in which you're meeting with the Lord every single day, that might just be it. Private worship is of utmost importance. Christians should have a time and a place where they meet with the Lord every day for strength, for guidance. And by the way, Jesus is our example in this. Did you know that the Lord Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Son of God, felt like that was necessary in his own life? The Bible says in Mark 1.35, and in the morning, rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. The Lord Jesus Christ was in the habit of private worship, finding a place alone, apart, a solitary place where he could get alone with his Father and pray. And you and I ought to develop the same types of patterns. Do you, do you have a place in your home that is established as a place where you meet with the Lord? It's a beautiful place. That's a wonderful place. It should be a private place. It's awful hard to get alone with God, with the family up around and doing different things. Sometimes, some, you might have to get out of bed just a little bit early, but it's worth it. 
You're going to have to rise up a great while before day in order to make it happen. But listen, our worship should be established. But notice we see not only that there's the idea of private worship, but then there's the idea of public worship. Public worship consists of us gathering together with fellow believers in a public setting to worship the Lord. We, We call the people committed to this in a specific place. We call those people the local church. Church meets regularly, and those who are part of the church should be committed to being present when the church meets. What is a church? Church is a family. If you found out, if you found out your family was getting together apart from you, how would that make you feel? Kind of lousy, huh? Well, why didn't anybody invite me? I'm part of the family, aren't I? You know how many, you know how many of God's people, they know, they know the family's meeting, but they just choose to disregard it. They know the family's getting together. The family's going to sit around a table, as it were. They're going to feast on not literal food, but they're going to feast on the truth of God's word. And yet lots of people just say, that's yeah, really not that important for me. I, I, don't, I don't need that as, 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 as much as maybe some others do. Can I, can I say, listen, it's not sufficient. It's not sufficient to get together with the family while sitting in your living room watching it on television. I'm thankful for live stream, and we live stream to a lot of folks, and a lot of folks, they they rely upon it because they cannot leave their homes. But sometimes, and I'm afraid maybe over the last few years, that's just become very convenient to do. It's easier just to stay in my home. It's easier just to maybe be in my car and just streaming the pastor while he's preaching. Listen, you miss something. You miss something by not being here. Now, maybe during the 2020 year, we, we maybe live stream some family gatherings, but we don't do that anymore, do we? It's a birthday party. What are you doing? I'm logging on to YouTube. Well, why are you logging on to YouTube? Well, because we're going to celebrate the birth of my... Well, now, if he lives in another city, that's, a, that's one thing. But if he lives down the street, you want to be there, don't you? When the church meets, listen, when the church meets, the church gets together. We're meeting with the Lord. It's our public worship. Therefore, we ought to be committed to being in God's house. It ought to be established in our lives. Plant, plant the grove and be there consistently. But notice, notice, secondly, our worship should be biblical. Not only should worship be established, but it should be biblical. Previously, Abraham had known and referred to God as the Most High God. We find that in Genesis 14 and verse number 18. And then he called God the Almighty God in Genesis 17.1. But here, here he adds to a, a new understanding of God that is also biblical and proper. He calls God, he calls him the Lord. And notice, the everlasting God. Now let's just be honest. Most High God and everlasting God are not the same thing, are they? They're two different elements of who God is. Most high God and almighty God, those are two different things. Most high refers to his position. His almighty element refers to his power. And then in here, his, the everlasting nature refers to, uh, to him as, as an, eternal, uh, an eternal being with no beginning and no ending. And all of these, listen, all of these are completely biblical. They're in line with who our God is. Living in a temporal body, in a temporal world, with everything we see being in a state of deterioration, it brings, I don't know about you, but it brings me great comfort to remember that my God is everlasting. Everything around me is wearing out, including this body that I'm in, but my God never wears out. Everything around me is getting tired, it's getting fatigued, it's getting wearied, but my God never slumbers, he never sleeps, he never gets tired. You say, well, I thought he took a day of rest. He took a day of rest in the book of Genesis, not because he was tired. He did that to show us an example of what we ought to do on a weekly basis. That's who our God is. He's everlasting. When we worship him, we can worship him and refer to his position. He's the most high God. 
We can think about his power. He is the almighty God. And here Abraham adds another element to his worship of God. He learned something new. And by the way, by the way, though some of you have been saved for many years, it's a wonderful thing every once in a while to learn something new about your God, isn't it? Every time we open this book and have time of private worship and even time of public worship, there is the possibility that God is going to show us something about himself that we never saw before. Perhaps maybe you've gone and you've thought of him being the most high God and you've thought of him being the almighty God, but maybe you've never given a whole lot of thought to him being the everlasting God, but that's who he is. He is eternal. His truth is everlasting. Isn't that great to know? And did you know that his life, the life he offers to us is everlasting as well? The Bible says in John 10, 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life well that's in line with god's character too isn't it because if god is eternal and everlasting and he's giving life to his people that life that he gives should also be eternal and everlasting and by the way it is it's possible that there's someone that's coming to this room this morning and you don't have god's eternal everlasting life that's how you came in but that's not the way you have to leave if you'll be willing to do so You can humble yourself, you can repent of your sin and acknowledge its presence in your life, and you can look to Jesus Christ who alone can save you from your sins. And you can have, listen, you can walk out of here today with everlasting or eternal life. Doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter what you've done in your past, doesn't matter whether you're a guy or a girl, none of of that matters. Doesn't matter what color skin you have, what language you spoke in the beginning where you were born. Listen, Jesus loves everyone. And anyone, anyone can be a sheep in his pasture who hear his voice and follows him. He gives them in return. He gives them eternal life.